This episode is brought to you by the Women's Network. Also know that like your path is going to change and that's fully okay. And that's the way it should be. Like some of the best things that have ever happened to me are because I took a chance that I'm not even really sure why I took. Envy is a really interesting emotion and it can actually be incredible for you. Like lean into your envy, you know, like Mm -hmm. you're looking at someone and you're like, I'm so like, I feel so bad because I don't have, you know, this incredible job. Like lean into that and say like, why am I really jealous of this person? Like, why am I jealous of this job? So like follow that sort of envy to motivate you to where you want to go. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Redefining Ambition. I'm very excited to introduce our next guest, Nora Raj Brown, SVP of Communications and Brand Marketing at Goop.com. Goop.com was founded by Gwyneth Paltrow in 2008 and was launched as an e-newsletter. The company has since transformed into a modern lifestyle brand and has a reported valuation of about $250 million dollars. The company has experienced tremendous growth, and Nora has had a front row seat to its ambitious expansion. I hope you enjoy the episode. Okay, I am so excited to welcome Nora on this podcast. Welcome to Redefining Ambition. Thanks for being here. It's so nice to meet you. So nice to meet you. Thanks for coming on. So you have had such an interesting career path, and we're going to get to that. But before we get started... Uh, We're living through a pandemic. These are uncertain, extraordinary times. How are you managing and how has your life changed since the day everyone remembers, which is March 11th to the 13th? Oh my God. Um, I don't know that I am managing that well, to be completely honest. But um, no, you know, I think it's, it's funny because I was having this conversation with a friend the other day where like, obviously this is a terrible time in so many ways and it's been a really fraught summer, um, both politically and, you know, with obviously the fact that we're living through a global health pandemic, which at least for me is really the first that I've gone through. But it's been weird because in some ways it's actually been like a really beautiful time as well. And I'm so used to being on a plane and being like, like running around all summer and having like events. And then when we go on vacation, like we would go to Europe and all, all great things, but I think it's been really nice to just be sort of in one place um, and to have a little bit of a different perspective. Like I've read books, like I've spent time with my husband in a way that like, I don't think we've ever, like we've been together for over 10 years and I don't think we've ever spent this much time together. And it's been, so there's been a lot of like really lovely things too. And I think we've all been able to like ground ourselves a little bit more. So I try to look at the silver lining and all of it, even though it's sometimes it's hard to see that silver lining. Yes. And you are currently in New York. You left LA because the air quality was not very conducive to proper health standards or needs. So what is it like being back in New York? Honestly, it's really great. So we we left actually back in June, mostly just for the reason that I think like everyone else, like we'd just been in our house for so long and we were like, we just need a little bit of a, a change of scenery. So, um, and I lived in New York for a very long time. So we came out to the Hamptons for what was supposed to be two to three weeks. And we sort of just like stayed because when we got here, it correlated with when coronavirus was really spiking in LA. 
Got so it. we ended up, it's been kind of weird. Like we've been here since mid June and I literally have one carry on. Um, <laughs> and so it's been kind of like a funny experience. Our, um, a friend of ours gave us a cat as a present. Wow. Yeah, we can't, wow. that's a whole other podcast, but, um, so it's been like a very funny few months, but in New York, like we just got here on Sunday and there's this incredible energy out in the city and I don't know what it's like in DC, but like. I was worried over the summer, everyone was like, we're leaving New York city. We're not going back. Like, you know, there was that Jerry Seinfeld piece that ever yes. like, everybody shared. He was like, it's not dead. And there was this big conversation going on about that. And like, it is so beautiful to be here and to have that energy still circulate and like everyone's sitting outside and, and um, it kind of feels very European in a way. So I guess it does. With yeah. The restaurants, the streets. Totally. It's something really nice. And it feels like people are really coming together. Not physically, but like emotionally. <laughs> right, right. You've mentioned you have lived in New York for quite some time and in coming back, what uh, I think people are always fascinated in understanding New York City culture and lifestyle and the vibe of the city. What feels different now in being in this city that has been completely transformed by the pandemic? Honestly, I think I think the nice thing is that it doesn't actually feel that different. Like the great thing about living in the city is the second like my favorite seasons were always that beginning of spring when it starts to get nice out mm -hmm. and then fall when everyone's like back from their summers because you feel this like everyone's so excited to be outside and to be walking or to be like having a drink on the sidewalk corner or whatever it is. And there's that energy is still very much alive here. Wow. So I think that's kind of the nice thing is it like, it really doesn't, I mean, look, it's, it's different. Everybody's in mass restaurants are closed. Like, you know, there's, there's so many things, but um, it feels like the city is, is coming to life in a really special way. So I want the listeners to get to know who you are. Where did you grow up before going off to UC San Diego? So I grew up in Palo Alto, California, which, you know, at the time, now I think more people know it, but at the time people really did not know it. Like I always joke, oh, that, oh no, like I remember going to college even in San Diego, which is made up of mostly people from California. And I would always describe it as like next to Stanford or like 45 minutes south of San Francisco. Like it was really not, I mean, it was like probably the least cool place on the planet. I think it's still, wow. which is kind of like the nice part about Palo Alto, but uh, <laughs> no, it was very, it was very much like a, a Stanford university and tech town. And like the sexiness was not really there. Now I think there's like a little bit of a sheen to it. But when I grew up, it was really interesting because as you mentioned earlier, you know, there's so many times you think you're going to do X, Y, and Z and you end up completely in a different place. And what I found really interesting was that looking back, you know, it felt like also as the daughter of Indian immigrants, like it, it felt like there were only a few paths. And, you know, there's like that joke in Indian culture where it's like, you can be like a doctor or an engineer or, you know, you have like three choices and you just pick one. <laughs> and that definitely was like, my dad was in tech and my mom worked at Stanford. So it was like a very, and, and that was with a lot of my friends' parents too. And so I was always a little bit like, like I'm still a little bit of a Luddite. Like I'm like trying to understand TikTok and it's really difficult for me. 
but I always was more interested in the creative side of things. Mm. And writing was one of the things that came really easily to me. And I always loved that side of it. But it was it was definitely interesting because that wasn't necessarily like now you look back and there's so many different paths, right? Like you can, especially in this age, you can really make whatever job you want to make. But at that time, it felt very limited. And then I went to UC San Diego and I was a literature writing major and I minored in Italian literature, which like, by the way, like my parents were like, what is happening? <laughs> like, are you like, do we have to pay for you for the rest of our lives? Like, are you going to be able to get a job? Like they were very concerned. And then moving to New York, it's like, then you really see like, you're like, oh, like you can literally make a career. Like I loved fashion, but I never thought there was a career in fashion. And look, fashion's like $2 billion, you know, like it's a huge, huge industry. So I think growing up, like the sheltered part of it was was nice, but it was also like, I wish I'd known earlier that there are so many more options. And that is thematic to this podcast, uh, something we talk often about. Did you feel guilty in, in studying a field within writing and literature, given the insurmountable amount of pressure that your parents had placed on you? I didn't feel guilty. I mean, I think as, as concerned as my parents were, they were very um, encouraging. And I think they recognized that like they didn't have a lot of choice when they were growing up. I mean, they moved here in 1975. My dad went to Berkeley for grad school for um, computer science. Um, and, you know, I think now it's, so I think they were concerned for me, but now it's really like, it's been really beautiful to have this sort of second relationship with my parents, you know, hmm. now that like, the parenting side of it is a little bit done um, <laughs> and we can, we, we now like relate to each other more as friends. And it's really lovely to see like my parents are now retired and now they're doing like what they always wanted to do, you know? Yes. Oh. Which is very, it's very cool to see your parents have sort of as have a second life. You grew up in California. You graduated from college in California. Uh, you then found internships in New York with companies like Condé Nast did you ever envision yourself being bi-coastal or moving to the East Coast, living in New York? Was that ever a dream? Sort of. I mean, so I almost went to NYU for undergrad, but I visited and I was a little overwhelmed by like, you know, your, your classes are like above Chinese restaurants. Um, <laughs> and I was like, what's happening? I came to New York for summer in college and I'd come a good amount. I'd come for summer in high school there was not a lot of thought into it, honestly. Like mm. this is at that time, this like media was really centered in New York city. And again, like with the idea of options and choices, like I wanted to go into media. So I was like, okay, I want to work at Condé Nast. Like that was sort of the only path that I saw. And then obviously like, you know, you get to the real world or whatever it is. And you're like, oh, like, it's not that simple. Like you don't just like follow this very linear path to to get where you need to go. So I moved to New York. I moved literally like with a best friend from college and we lived in like, I felt like I was in a sitcom. We lived in this apartment on the Lower East Side above a bar and like literally like it was, I don't, I don't even know, but probably a thousand square feet. And like our kitchen was like half in our bathroom. Like the whole thing was <laughs> totally bizarre, um, but it was so fun. And when I got here, I was very, you know, I was unpleasantly surprised at how hard it is to find a job. Yes. So what was the first opportunity you landed out of college when you moved to New York? 
So I started interning because literally I couldn't find a job and I um, wanted, I like wanted obviously to do something and to, I was really excited to start my career. And so I started interning in a magazine called Details, which is now sadly defunct, but it was a, mm. a really great men's magazine that I worked in the fashion department. And it was like, you know, it was like back in the day where like, you literally could not leave the fashion closet. Like it didn't matter if you had to pee, it didn't matter if you had to eat, like you just like had to be there at all times. Like it was a very... It was like right before Devil Roar's product came out. Like, wow. and I had great bosses. It wasn't that, but it was like, you know, a different culture. Very demanding. Um, very demanding. And also very like, you know, you, it was very much like you had to pay your dues. And I think we're seeing some of that now come into a reckoning, especially over the summer with like a lot of the stories that came out. So I did that and I actually loved it. It was so fun, but it was, I wasn't getting paid and I obviously like needed to <laughs> make some money. So I very randomly got a friend's sister. I actually think I had applied for literally like a receptionist job at a PR agency and she wrote me back and she was like, you don't want that job. Like, trust me, like, it's not like, you don't want to be answering people's phones. Like you could easily get hired as assistant here, but we're not hiring. But like, I know someone who is hiring. And so it was a company called BWR um, and they were a big talent and brand PR firm. So I went into the interview. I had no idea what celebrity PR was or like, you know, like, at UC San Diego, the majors were very academic focused. Like they were not like, we didn't have a journalism major, mm. you know, like we didn't have like an advertising major. Like all of the majors were very much like back to the theoretical side of things. So I literally didn't know what PR was. So no, I had no idea I would like end up making wow. a career in it, but like I didn't really understand. So but I went to the interview and I remember you know, they had a really nice office. Like this was like the extent of my decision-making. And the woman who I interviewed with was like, well, this is going to be priceless on your resume. And I sort of just took that as face at face value. And I said, okay, like I'll do it, which like, you know, I would recommend everyone to do more research than that (laughs) when you're getting your jobs, but it it did work out. So how did her statement ring true? How did it get you in the door elsewhere? And as you were continuing to find more opportunities and work, were you someone who felt like, oh, I don't, I don't know what I'm going to be doing in a year or two, or I'm, I'm feeling the pressures of feeling like I'm not happy and I want to find my niche and haven't found that yet? Was that crossing your mind at all? Oh my God, 100%. I mean, I always, it's funny because looking back, like my 20s were, were incredible in so many ways and they were so fun, but like I also was so riddled with self-doubt for probably my whole twenties. Um, Mm. and I always felt like I wasn't good enough and I felt like I wasn't moving quickly enough and I wasn't getting the jobs that I wanted. Um, and it was really frustrating. Like, and I think a lot of that is pressure that was self-inflicted and looking back, it's like, like now I look at people, I'm like, you're 24. Like you have so much time. Like you can screw up like (laughs) so many times and still have an incredible career but I did not feel that at the time. And so, and I was really like, I would compare myself to everyone. Like I remember there was this guy I knew who had gotten a job at Vanity Fair as an editorial assistant, which was like my dream job. And I was so frustrated that like, I couldn't get that interview or whatever it was. But, oh, I think it, you know, it all does work out for a reason. And so what happened at that place is I'd always been really interested in the editorial writing side of things. But to actually make a magazine, there's 9 million other departments that have to work together to make that happen. And so what I learned was really the other side of working in a magazine, which is like how like you have an entertainment editor who's booking 
talent, right? Who's booking celebrity covers, who's booking talent for photo shoots. And then how does that photo shoot get made? And there's a lot of negotiation back and forth about what photographer to use and what stylist to use and the concept and, and all of that. Wow. Um, so that's the side that I really learned at BWR, which like I never, I, I don't know that I ever would have gotten access to that. Um, if I had just been like on a straight editorial, like writing path. And it was interesting because then from there, you know, I sort of went into, I left talent PR and went into brand PR, but it's funny because now at Goop, because I have to handle all the stuff for Gwyneth, like all of that training that I had when I was 21 years old is actually like, it's all coming back and it was, it's so valuable, but sometimes it takes a while for you to like sometimes you learn something and you store it away and like, you're like, I don't know if I'll ever use this. And it's interesting that like, now I'm like, I'm so grateful. You touched on something that is for so many people, something they do often, which is compare yourself to others. In our last podcast guest, Christine Broda shared her favorite quote, which is that comparison is the thief of joy. What advice would you go back and give yourself when you were in your twenties uh, with regards to comparing yourself to others, which is easy to do, especially with working within this very competitive space. I think, look, there's always going to be someone who's better, who things come easier to, who is in the right place at the right time. Like the only thing you can really do is set your own goals and your own path and say, like, if you really want to be at X, Y, and Z at this certain age, like figure out what are the steps you need to get to be there and then move along that path. Um, and, but also know that like your path is going to change and that's fully okay. And that's the way it should be. Like some of the best things that have ever happened to me are because I took a chance that I'm not even really sure why I took, but I do think there's something, and I, I cannot remember who said it, but it'll come to me, but there's something about also like envy is a really interesting emotion and it can actually be incredible for you. Like lean into your envy You know, like Mm. you're looking at someone and you're like, I'm so like, I feel so bad because I don't have, you know, this incredible job, like lean into that and say like, why am I really jealous of this person? Like, why am I jealous of this job? Like, is it because like, I feel like I really want to write and that's what's going to fulfill me. So like follow that sort of envy to get you to, to motivate you to where you want to go. That's really good advice. So you met your husband right around this time in your 20s. I did. I was like 26, I think. How did you meet if you don't mind to ask? So we actually met in college um, very like briefly. It was not, we were like, didn't date or anything. And then we ran into each other again at a birthday party um, in LA actually, like very, very randomly. And it was one of those things of like, you know, sometimes like I'd known him for years. Like I never even thought that like it, it just wasn't really a notion that we would ever date. Oh my gosh. And you rekindled things and just, yeah, I mean, kindled for the first time, not even like a rekindle, but it's funny what's like under your nose sometimes, you know? Yes. And was that something, there's so much pressure to date New York and feel like you have to also, in addition to succeeding in your professional life, feel like you have to settle down and meet someone and find someone and uh, was that ever something that you felt pressured about living in New York yeah actually no, working I, in this space I gave myself like all the worst pressure like for mm. for sure it was like completely self-inflicted but um yeah I definitely felt that I like I think there's also this this insecurity when you're younger 
that has to do, or at least I felt this, that like really had to do with like, am I pretty enough? Am I this? Am I that? Like that feeling of like, that feeling of just always, again, like that comparison. And I Mm. think like what's amazing now, especially, and I hope that people have this earlier, but like I really felt like when I hit my 30s, that became so much less important and I was really able to both see myself and see other people for the value that they were bringing. And it was so much like the superficial stuff kind of went away. And I don't really even know how it happened, but it's sort of just, it naturally, I think as you become more confident in yourself and everyone becomes more confident in themselves, like the people that you're around to, because you're all sort of growing up together, right? Um, right, right. There's that transition. And I like, I'm so grateful for that transition. I wish it had happened earlier. Like I wish I had had not it just been so hard on myself. Did you ever feel the pressures of having to conform to or look a certain way? I mean, I'm sure most of the listeners have seen The Devil Wears Prada. Was there an additive layer you felt when working in this space where you felt judged by what you wear and how you look and the type of makeup you put on and the brand of shoes you wear? You know, I didn't feel that as much. Um, I mean, there was definitely like, I worked at a PR agency where one of the rules was like, you had to have your nails done at all times. Wow. And she, our founder who is, I will say is like totally brilliant. And so, I mean, she built this thing from, from ground up, but she was always like, look, like if you're in a meeting and you don't know what you're saying, like the, the most important thing is come to a meeting and be able to speak intelligently. But if you're in a meeting and you're caught off guard and you don't know what to say, like at least you should look presentable. Like you should at least look put together, you know, like it, like that is easy for anyone to do is like, if you look polished, that's sort of half the battle. Um, and you know, you've heard people say that, like if you speak with confidence, that's, that gets you halfway, you yeah. know? Yeah. Um, so in some ways I did think like, I don't know that I ever would have taken it that far. Like, I don't think I've like literally had my nails done since <laughs> I worked there. But, um, but I do think there is something to be said for just present, like trying to present your best self in every way. And like, if you don't know, like you're not going to know the answer to every question, but you can at least be confident in your response. Really, really good advice. So I want to get to Goop. So how did you find this opportunity working it- at Goop? It was so random. And I think it goes back to that idea of what we had talked about, where it's like, if you're really trying to follow this linear path, then you close yourself off to so many incredible things. Um, and mm-hmm. so I was working, so I'd, I always wanted to work in a magazine. And I, at that time, I was working at Time Inc. I was working at InStyle. Um, and Time Inc. now is also defunct. You see, this, this is a problem thread in my career. But um, no, so Meredith bought Time Inc. And it was, it was right before, probably like, I think I was there probably like a year or two before like the merger really happened. And um, we, so it was at that time where like I got hired to work on InStyle and then they just started restructuring and they gave me like seven more magazines to work on. And that was sort of par for the course there because, you know, when a company is like about to be acquired, you're, you're doing everything you can to, to get your balance sheet to a really good place. But it was also hard because it was like, like I, you know, like I had to work on Southern Living, which is a great magazine, but I was like, I don't know anything about this demographic and you really have to learn quickly and sort of, and it was very different from the job that I thought that I was taking when I got there. But so I was at InStyle and I loved so many things about it, but I also, you know, the writing was really on the wall when it came to print media. Right. so I had randomly had two friends. So one from that PR agency I mentioned, um, and one who had been in, in style who both had gone to Goop and they had like started, it would, 
they had started a year before um, I left and they were both like, I think two of like 10 employees or something. Like it was a really small, wow. um, small group at that time. And I just randomly knew both of them and liked them. And they both were always like, oh my God, like this job is perfect for you. Like you have to come to Goop, you have to come to Goop. But it was very like, it was very um, loose, you know, like they would say that and then I'd be like, yeah, yeah, okay. And then they, um, and then like they weren't even hiring for the position. So it was like, it wasn't really a real conversation. And it was funny because at the time I really wanted to go into fashion and I'd interviewed for this job at this like very like storied luxury house. And I'd had like nine months of interviews. My God. Um, It was, oh my God, it was so intense and I was so excited for the job. And then at the last minute, like they literally were like, what's your salary recommend, like your salary requirements, like we're sending you an offer letter. And then I got a call and they were like, we've actually decided to restructure the entire department. So like, we're not, this position is, yeah, like we've fired nine months. Oh yeah. And they were like, we, you know, we've let go of the person who's going to be your boss and we're going to just, we have to like kind of start from zero and we don't know what we want and whatever. So I was devastated. Um, and then probably like two months or so after that, and I was kind of like burned out on the interview process. Like I was like, this is like, it was so much work. And, you know, for anyone who's listening, who is looking for a job right now, like, you know, how much work it is to interview like it's a full-time job, especially if you're doing it right. Um, and really doing your research. So then anyway, these these two friends that I had, one of them literally called me and was like, you need to send me your resume tonight. And I was like, like, what do you mean? And she was like, well, we need to find someone to head a PR at Goop. Like, I think you'd be great. Like, are you interested? And I was like, oh my God, like, I don't even really like, like, what is the job? Like, I don't even really know. <laughs> um, I loved Goop and I'd been reading it for a while, but like, I didn't, you know, it, it was a startup. It was very different from what I've been doing before. Um, but I sent her my resume and then I went in for an interview, I think literally like three days later, then I went in for four more interviews over the next week. Whoa. And then, yeah. And like, it was, so it was really quick. Wow. And you were hired. So you're hired as a uh, VP of communications. Yeah. That, I, I want to go back to what you said. Magazine looks very different today than it I did so sad. five years ago. I mean, were you someone who was ahead of the curve thinking as it was transforming under their noses this is not the future or this is not the direction of, of how people are going to consume, primarily consume news uh, and editorial. I mean, what were your, were you someone who, who was thinking like, Oh my gosh, this is, they are falling below the belt. I was ahead of the curve. Cause honestly, I think I was probably like a little behind the curve. Um, I mean, at that point it's like, you know, they had so many digital properties had popped up that were doing really, really well. And I think these storied publications had been a little behind on, on making that move to digital anyway. Mm. Um, and not that, you know, I think, I think a lot of them have done a really good job, but it always felt, I mean, now you have Instagram, right? And you're looking at like beautiful images that used to only be available through fashion magazines. And you don't like, so, so much of, I think what they were doing is just, you don't need it anymore. It's, it's a little obsolete. Um, but I do think there will always be a place for like, a beautiful print magazine. Like I don't think that Vogue or InStyle or any of those magazines are going anywhere, but I do think they have to reimagine what that product is. And, you know, a lot of people have gone like way more in like the keepsake realm, right? Like we're going to create a magazine and maybe it won't be as often, but it's going to be really, really beautiful. And you're going to keep it on your coffee table and you're going to flip back to it and like, let's make our stories more evergreen. And, and so I think there's ways of, of moving forward. Um, mm. 
but you know, it's hard. It's like, like that advertiser publishing model is really difficult. And it's something we've seen at Goop too, you know, like, yeah. like there's so many, there's just like, there's limited ad dollars and there's, and so much of it is going to different platforms. And um, so that's why all these magazines are going into different revenue streams and saying like, okay, like let's try to do a collection with Banana Republic over here or let's try to, you know? So for the listeners who don't know much about Goop or have not heard of it, what is Goop? So Goop is a lifestyle platform. Um, It was started by Gwyneth in 2008 Mm -hmm. and she literally started it from her computer, like using MailChimp and was just (laughs) like, like, it's so funny if you look back at vintage Goop because she like, you know, they should give you like five templates. Yes. And you just like pick a template. <laughs> like that's what it was. Like she didn't like now, obviously we have a big team of web designers and all that. But at that time it was not like that. Um, and it really oh. started, I think from this inherent place of questioning, I think women's magazines have um, mm. all spoken to their reader in a really specific way. And it's always been like, here's what you should buy and here's what you should look at. And here's, you know, I'm going to tell you from a very authoritative place, like this is what you should do. And Gwyneth had a lot of questions that she really wanted answered that she didn't necessarily feel like were coming from. That's something that women's magazines were trying to answer. And it was less of a conversation. Like it was much more, as I mentioned, like it was very deliberate from them. Mm -hmm. And I think she was like, you know, like I have so many, like we're not binary. Like there's so much gray area here. And like, there's so many things that I just want to know, like, for example, like, a lot of things that you talked about, like imposter syndrome and feeling shame and, and like, what does that mean? And like, how do we fix that? And how do we talk about that in a way that is actually productive? And that was also like the era of like, you know, women can do it all. And I think she was one of the first to be like, I don't feel like I can do it all. So like, can we have a conversation about that? And so now Goop has evolved. It's 12 years later and it is now encompassing of same that content lifestyle platform. We also have our own shop which has both Goop products and multi-brand. We have lines across wellness, beauty, skincare and body, fashion, et cetera. And it all comes from this incredibly curated, thoughtful point of view. What is the culture like working at Goop? Honestly, it's it's really incredible. Like I've never worked somewhere that cares so much about emotional and mental health. Look, we work really hard. We're still very much a startup, but you know, normally we have two weeks off every August that we really turn off our phones and then you'll come back more inspired. It's incredible. Like I don't know another so rare that, yeah, that really does that, at least not in the US. And the way that we have conversations, I think, is really different from anywhere that mm-hmm. um, I'd ever worked. So everyone when they started group reads a book called the collaborative way and it talks about five different tenants one of which is speak straight and so if you're having some sort of disagreement with someone you know you can go to them and say i i need to speak straight for a second like i need to talk to you and like tell you what's on my chest wow. in the content world of group i think they bleed over obviously in how we speak but everyone has to be responsible for their own contribution to a problem. If you and I are having a disagreement, yes, it can be because maybe you're just being really difficult, but you also have to look at yourself and say, what am I doing that's not making this fruitful? Or what am I doing that's causing some sort of disassociation? That is incredible. Wow. You touched on turning off and being present in the moment. Is that something um, in this hyper hustle culture era that you give a lot of thought to? How have you been able to manage working at a very demanding startup in an era that is very celebratory of working hours that often conflict with mental health? To be totally honest, I don't think I'm that good at it, but it's something that I am trying to act 
actively work on. You said it perfectly. There's so much glamour around, oh, I worked till 10 last night. Like it's almost like a point of pride. Yes. Um, yes. And it's weird, right? Because what you're basically saying is like, I'm leaving no time for myself and for my mental health. Something that like, are you even work? Like what I struggle with is you can work till 10. Like I've had nights that I've worked at 10, till 10 and I've been so productive and I'm really proud of that work. But I've also had nights that I've worked till 10 where I've been like, I don't really know what I accomplished. Yeah, same. And I think that second bucket is the issue. I haven't fully figured out how to make sure that when I'm working, I'm working at my most productive self. And that's something that I'm always trying to do. There's a saying that Gwyneth always says, actually, that she's like, if you want something done, give it to a working mom. It's amazingly true. Like the women that I work with who are working moms, I'm like, how are you so productive? And they're like, no, I don't have another choice. So I think sometimes looking at them and being like, they really shut off at six. I really appreciate that when someone says to me like, no, I can't do a call at seven. I have to spend time with my kid. Wow. Like To me, that's like very inspiring. And admirable. Yeah. I don't think people quite understand the level of involvement Gwyneth Paltrow has in the business. I'm sure you get this question often. What is it like working with Gwyneth Paltrow, who has had an extraordinary career, not just in the business world, but elsewhere? And what is her involvement in the business? It's actually the opposite, I think, of what so many people think. She's very, very involved. Every day we have a meeting of the executive team where we go through the things that people are working on, the issues of the day, et cetera. She's constantly on Slack. Wow. Like that she, oh, she loves like, I mean, she loves Slack from like a work perspective, but she's also like the first one to respond when someone wants a restaurant recommendation or something wow. like that. But she's very, yeah, she's very, very involved. Like this is her company. It's her full-time job. Back when we were at an office, she was in the office every single day, like, you know, same hours that we all were. What has been a really valuable lesson from her is that this was her first real company, right? Like she didn't scale millions of startups before. And she's very open about what she doesn't know. I think that confidence also can show up in a way when you say, I don't get this. I don't, I don't know what this means. And I think when you come into a situation and you're able to say that, they've created a culture where it's really okay to say, I don't understand what that number means. What is our PV? You know? And I think that is so important because especially as a startup, you get thrown into a lot of things that you don't know how to do. I'm a comms person, but like I ended up having to do our retention marketing strategy recently. I was fully on random blogs and <laughs> talking to anyone who would talk to me. I mean, they're like real beginners understanding of it. And so having that curiosity and that willingness to say, I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm going to figure it out is a really important lesson I think I've learned from her. You now serve as the SVP of communications and brand marketing. What has been the greatest challenge posed to this position, this this ever-growing company, and what has been the, the most rewarding part of your position? I think what's really tough about a lot of startups, they never had a head of communications before. And wow. then when I took on this new role recently, like we've never really had a head of brand marketing. Not only do you have to do the job, you have to figure out where do I fit in this organization? What are the processes? How do I create this new role and carve this out and like not step on people's toes, but also add value. And those are all really, there's not a playbook for doing it. There's tips that I can give people like 
have conversations with everyone, like make sure everyone feels heard before you come in and, and all of a sudden make a lot of decisions. But like each company is so different. And that has been really tough both times. Like I'm in it right now and it's really hard. You kind of just have to understand that you're going to screw up from time to time or you're going to make a wrong call or you're going to sort of put yourself in a situation that is going to be really, really difficult and you won't know how to navigate it. But I also think that has been the most rewarding part. You are someone who has achieved a lot of success. You are someone who clearly is very curious and inquisitive and hardworking. In your own words and opinion, what do you think has been able to differentiate yourself from others? You're working with great talent and you work in a competitive space. So what has been able to allow you to achieve this level of success? You know, we talked about imposter syndrome earlier. Like I constantly feel like I'm not doing enough and I'm not good enough. And in some ways, I think that is motivating in itself, right? Um, But that's not a tip I would give anyone. Like, I don't want anyone to feel that way and then have that be their only motivation. But um, I do think there is something great about always feeling like you have to prove yourself. It just, it makes you perform better. But I think it's really important to to, to take a minute and, and to recognize your successes and to feel grateful for those things. But the best advice I can give, which is the simplest advice, is like work hard, be curious, and ask a lot of questions. Has it been difficult for you to own your accomplishments and take pride in what you've achieved? Or is that something you felt perhaps more uncomfortable talking about? I mean, I guess, yes. I didn't really think about it. So we asked that question. I think we all feel like we could be doing more, right? And I think we all are works in progress. And that's like what, what I find the most important is to be able to look at yourself and say, here are like five things that I need to work on and to know those things and to have them in the back of your head. And, mm-hmm. and when these uncomfortable feelings come, sit with them, you know, don't push them away. Feel that uncomfortability. Anytime I'm in a situation where I feel, oh my God, like I'm really nervous about this. The best thing to do is literally feel that, be like, like I'm going to feel nervous. Like I'm nervous right now. I'm nervous and I'm going to lean into that. And then it sort of goes away in a weird way. Like once you acknowledge it, like I think it was Brene Brown who said, shame's like a Petri dish, right? If you keep that Petri dish closed, the shame will just get bigger and bigger and envelop you. But if you open it and you say, it's okay to feel like, I don't really know what I'm doing right now, but I'm just going to take that and do my best. I think that's when you're able to move past those feelings. Okay. So our lightning round of questions, what is your favorite Goop skincare product? The Goop 15% peel pads. What is your favorite book? Song of Solomon by Toni Morrison. Who is your favorite new artist? Literally, I just like listen to Fleetwood Mac. I'm like a seven-year-old with <laughs> tastes. What is the first thing you're doing after quarantine? Getting on a plane and going little anywhere. Like going <laughs> a hotel. Can't wait. What is your guilty pleasure? Pasta and red wine. If you could leave our listeners with one lasting piece of advice, what would that be? To have faith in the process and in the messiness of life. Wow. Well, I want to thank you so much for coming on our podcast. I am so grateful that we were able to have this conversation and look forward to keeping in touch. You too. Thank you. You had such good questions. Thanks so much for listening to an episode of Redefining Ambition. If you like what you heard, please make sure to subscribe, rate us, tell your friends, and if there's anyone you think we should have on our show, let me know. Join me next Tuesday for a brand new episode of Redefining Ambition. We'll see you all then. Take care, everyone.